we live by the very simple philosophy and principles of no judgment. So we don't look down on people. We don't, um, we don't see the issue. We see the person. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love, and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. 34-year-old Ben Vassalow is the CEO of Youth Projects, a charity that supports vulnerable people uh, in Melbourne's CBD. It provides alcohol and other drugs counselling, night nursing services uh, and a social enterprise. And they uh, estimate that every year they contact over 15,000 vulnerable young people. Ben's travelled an interesting road to get where he is today and I wanted to talk with him not just about the challenges of social disadvantage but also how he manages to keep himself healthy uh, in an environment uh, in which there is a huge amount of pressure upon him. Uh, pressure that I imagine has probably only increased with the advent of coronavirus. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to join us in the Good Life podcast today. An absolute pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, your upbringing is, uh, is, is hardly uh, an idyllic one. Uh, tell us about your uh, journey and, and the, that of your two sisters. You know, look, it's, it has been an interesting um, road, that's for sure. Um, my two sisters and I, one older, one younger, grew up um, in a small um, town down on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria. Um, we grew up in a, a very tight-knit housing community estate uh, called West Park. Uh, and I look back sometimes, um, you know, it was an incredibly challenging journey, but one that uh, definitely taught me a great deal of resilience. We, uh, we had two wonderful parents, um, very, very young. My mum and dad were hardworking, great people, uh, and did their best, I suppose, to really attempt to lift, lift us out of poverty, because um, that's where we were for most of my childhood. Um, and although they did do their best, they um, unfortunately separated just before I started high school. Um, and my father succumbed to what was a pretty significant opioid crisis at that time and, uh, and became a heroin addict. What, what do you think got him into that, Ben? Look, I mean, he had children incredibly young. There was a great deal of um, pressure on him. They were teenage parents themselves. Yep. Uh, and albeit um, he was a hardworking man, he, he definitely did have um, you know, addictive tendencies. He, he did gamble from time to time. Um, and I just, I, uh, that particular drug and most opioids, particularly heroin, is an incredibly addictive mm. poison and, and it doesn't take much to get addicted. And this would have been late 1990s, so there's an, an awful lot of heroin on, uh, around Australia. A great deal. And we lived right towards the end of the train line. For those um, outside of Victoria, we lived at the end of the Frankston line, which connected to an old um, country V line. Mm -hmm. And very much Frankston was the epicentre of the heroin crisis. And it was cheap. Um, it was accessible. It was, you know, obviously affordable. And, and Dad succumbed to that, unfortunately. He was addicted for some time. I mean, fast forward all these years, although we're not in contact, he's... He's definitely clean and, and built a life for him, but unfortunately he, he wasn't able to be there for us um, as, uh, as teenagers. 
and that was really challenging, not having a fatherly figure around. He was there in and out of our lives as he, he tried to get clean a number of times, um, but the, the relationship itself was um, incredibly um, damaged, I suppose, um, throughout all of his withdrawals, his behaviours were um, incredibly um, negative and, and didn't have a great impact on, uh, on my teenage years. But my mother, the strength um, of, our, of our lives, um, she was a wonderful, wonderful woman, was diagnosed with cervical cancer around the same time uh, in about, well, just after in 98. Um, single mum, working, um, working incredibly hard to raise three teenage kids at this stage. Um, she was in and out of remission a couple of times, but unfortunately in 2002, uh, I was 16 um, and mum unfortunately was 36 um, and she passed. We lost her to cancer that year. Oh, so young. And for, for you and your, your sisters, it must have been absolutely devastating. Where, where did you go? Who did you live with? Yeah, it, w it was incredibly devastating. I mean, we, we really just didn't know what to do. A couple of poor lost souls. We... Um, as I, I mentioned earlier, we were in a uh, housing commission house, so we were able to continue on there for a, a small time. Um, my sisters were, my older sister was 19, I was 16, my little sister was 15. And, and although we had a small number of family supports kind of visiting us or checking in on us, we decided that we would go it alone. Um, Dad wasn't on the scene, there was no one to necessarily go and live with full time but also you know mum had raised us to be incredibly independent at this stage so the three of us decided to stick it out together and and do our best my older sister had just um, just started university she deferred and worked full time I left school and worked full time uh, my little sister continued on through to year 11 um, it was incredibly challenging but also you know we we, we weren't perfect <laughs> although mum had, had done a great job of raising us we we made some um, some questionable decisions and, and most teenagers without constant supervision would do so. Um, so I left year 12 about six weeks in and, and as I said, decided to work. Um, but we did our best. We stuck together. Um, we got the bills paid. We took care of each other. Um, you know, there were months there where we lived off uh, two minute noodles and cheap white bread, but we survived. And, you know, fast forward 18 years on, we're, we're still as tight and as close as ever. Yes, you must feel incredibly close to your, your sisters after going through such a, a, an experience as that. Uh, how did you find your way into uh, the, the world of social purpose organisations? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think, I mean, I started um, as one of the vulnerable young people that we now support. Mm. Uh, I was very, very lucky in my final year of school to connect with a school counsellor who, you know, was a great guide and, and mentor for me. Um, as I was starting to venture off the tracks and, and provided some really grounded, grounding advice and, and a sounding board uh, who reminded me that I was intelligent, I was clever and I was worthy. Um, and I saw around me, particularly in the area that I grew up, just so many kids not making it. They were falling foul of the juvenile justice system or they succumbed to drugs and alcohol and the partying lifestyle. And we didn't have a great deal of role models around us who had become professionals or gone off to university or had a successful trade or career. So I was lucky to have a school counsellor and, and one or two of my family members on my mother's side that really um, supported and guided me. And at the same time, um, this is the end of 2002, and as all we'd all remember the terrible um, uh, terrorism attack in Bali, yes. um, the Bali bombings. Um, we had you know over 200 people killed and, um, and a number of Australians there. I was studying Bahasa Indonesian, the Indonesian language at the time, was and profoundly connected to the country and was actually was supposed to go on a camp that year, um, and it was cancelled. Um, 
So, you know, I, I got to thinking about what was happening around the world and, and outside of my neighbourhood and outside of my own um, little nucleus and looked to Bali and started doing some research and found that, you know, with the, um, the bombings, um, tourism stopped, trade stopped and, and the Balinese families were really suffering. So I got together with a lady by the name of Jane Dennis who ran a small non-profit down on the peninsula and together we launched my first um, Fiore into community services and I, and I started a foundation um, working in Bali called the Bali Project, Friends Learning Together. And uh, we connected schools in Bali to back here in Victoria and, and set up relationships and partnerships um, based on trade, not aid. So we would, you know, bring goods back from Bali and sell them in schools. We did a couple of exchanges and, and initially that was really my taste of setting up what was a, a fantastic community development framework. And so uh, it seems there's sort of a great deal of serendipity in, uh, in falling into an organisation involved with Bali. Did you think at that stage of your life that you would go down the international development pathway or was there something that was drawing you back to, uh, to looking at uh, Australian challenges? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was a matter of circumstance, to be, to be perfectly honest. I think people at times try and map out, um, in hindsight or reflection, this perfect career, but mine mine was not necessarily planned out, Andrew. At the ripe old age of um, 20, my partner and I found ourselves pregnant with our first child. Um, so we adapt um, as the human beings that we are, and I'd made that commitment to, to raise our first child, um, who's a very strong, intelligent, caring 14-year-old now. His name is Zane. Um, so I came home to Australia, but still felt that connection um, to community services, but particularly to young people and ensuring that young people knew their worth and knew their value and knew the options available to them. And albeit their, um, their wealth status or their class, um, as determined um, not by them, that they could actually do more and be more and be the best that they could be. So I found myself in youth work and and I um, went and studied uh, Certificate 4 in, in Youth Services and then continued on studying beyond that, um, but was at the front line supporting young people to get back on their feet, um, you, you know, improve their mental health, um, get back to study, find a job. And really that's when I, I really understood the connection for young people in terms of social and economic participation and what that means for the greater social determinants of health. Did you find as a youth worker you were drawing on your personal experience? Definitely. Did that give you a sense of credibility and in, in particularly in breaking the ice with people? For sure it does. And, and I think as we've evolved as a society, we've become, um, I suppose, more understanding of what um, lived experience means, particularly in this, in this sector. Uh, and it's a fine line because drawing on personal experience but also ensuring that uh, the person you're working with is at the centre of their own um, journey uh, and that you're not forcing your own views, but definitely being able to, you know, draw on that lived experience. There's nothing um, more, I suppose, compelling than being able to sit down with someone and actually understand how they feel, what they've been through, uh, and everyone's circumstances are different. But when we sit down and talk to someone who's experiencing homelessness, I can legitimately say I know what it's like to have slept on a concrete slab or someone who can't afford to put food on the table I actually know what it's like to have to, as I said, live on two-minute magic noodles or, um, you know, potentially find other means to get food. It's a difficult circumstance, but I think people connect with those that have got that lived experience for sure. And so then uh, you continue to make your way uh, up and up in these organisations until uh, you found yourself uh, suddenly at, uh, at the age of uh, about 30 or so uh, a CEO. 
Uh, was that something that you uh, you expected, uh, a trajectory that uh, that you'd planned? <laughs> no, not at all. Again, I'm not going to pretend like I, I mapped this out for myself, but I, I'd spent um, probably after a few of those youth worker roles, I was with an organisation called Skills Plus. Um, who worked in uh, in youth services, education, employment, but also diversified over time, supporting migrants and refugees, people with a disability. Um, and what I found is that I was constantly being promoted, um, I suppose because I had the skill and capacity, um, but genuinely because I was interested in developing other people. So I had built a career for sort of five or six years within that organisation. We ended up merging. I became head of operations and the CEO left and, and looked at me and said, you are the natural leader of this organisation. Um, it's time for you to step up. And I applied for the CEO role and was, uh, was successful. Um, for me, um, being a CEO really isn't about the title, a CEO truly is a custodian of an organisation. The job is to bring forth the legacy and the history and understand the DNA and the purpose, but um, to understand that it takes a balance of sovereignty and strategy to lead organisations into the future. I very quickly um, established a keen passion and interest in modernising the non-profit way of thinking and understanding that we need to have both a social and economic return on investment to be sustainable. Um, I mean, the, the non-profit sector is the same as the public and private sectors now. We have to commission and, and tender for um, government contracts and major philanthropic sources of funding. So we had to become competitive. We had to prove that we were the best at lifting people out of poverty. Um, and we became quite successful and grew extraordinarily. Uh, and that's when the opportunity at Youth Projects came about back in 2017. And I felt an incredible calling, particularly to, to Melbourne CBD in the northern suburbs, particularly because of the high homelessness rates, the high youth unemployment rates. Um, but because here at Youth Projects, we, we have a history of um, delivering a holistic and connected model of care. We've got all the things in the one um, place that a person needs to be successful and get the support that they need. So in 2017, I, I took the helm as uh, a CEO and the greatest move I, I think I've made in my career to date. Let's talk about some of the things that uh, that, that you do and uh, and the the philosophy of rolling them out. Um, you're involved in um, harm prevention and, and outreach, uh, which uh, includes uh, foot patrols and uh, night outreach nurses. Mm -hmm. How do you connect with someone who's who's on the streets, particularly somebody who has uh, just become homeless, perhaps because they've they've uh, run away run away from a difficult home environment? Um, what are the what are the ways in which you break through to them? Sure, I mean we live by the very simple philosophy and principles of no judgment. So we don't look down on people. We don't um, we don't see the issue. We see the person. So youth projects is um, we actually support young people and adults experiencing homelessness now. Um, but we use the full array of services that we have. We use outreach and assertive outreach as an engagement tool to get people connected back to the hubs that we operate. The hubs that we operate have, as you said, harm reduction, drug safety advice. Um, we have nurses, we have doctors, uh, we have um, counselling services, mental health support. We also do all of the fundamental basics uh, in a really dignified way. We do showers, we do laundry, we do storage, we are people's registered mail address, internet in the works, and then we connect through um, our employment training and social enterprise programs. So being able to sit down and connect with someone in a non-judgmental way, focusing on their strengths and, and what it is that they need today, 
um, and then educating them on all the other supports that we have that we can wrap around them. Um, and we really let them lead their journey. This um, organisation is focused on person-centred practice. We are there to support you and guide you, um, but these are the decisions that you need to make as an individual and we'll be there to help you along that journey. So what does a conversation look like when one of your youth workers sits down with someone that they've, or can't, walks up to somebody they've never met before? What's, what's the first thing they say? Sure, the first thing they'd say is, how are you going? We, we keep it really simple, really basic. We have uh, a number of um, assessment tools that we use that we train our staff on, but we simply, the first thing that we always teach our staff is to be on the same level as the person that they're talking to. So we're not talking at them, we're not talking to them, we're talking with them, and we're having a genuine conversation. Um, so it's definitely, how are you? Um, and then we want to get to know a little bit about them. Um, and then ask them um, what sort of things that they may need. Um, we then give a bit of an education piece around the support that we can provide. And many people at first will say, I don't need anything. Um, you know, it'll take, mm. um, you know, it can take a large number of contacts to actually engage somebody into the supports that we provide. Um, you can imagine particularly people who are experiencing homelessness out on the street have, have had many um, traumatic experiences. They, they have um, significant lack of trust, particularly in authority or services. So it, it, it may not be one or two contacts. You know, I know of particular clients we've it's taken 20 or 30 times to try and engage them. Then there's others that who will respond immediately because um, they're at a different stage in their journey. They know that they need help and they'll be very honest with you as to what they need. Uh, and then we engage them back into our community hubs to, um, to start that, that journey, I suppose. What can someone who's not a youth worker but who's worried about homelessness learn from that? Uh, you know, if I'm wandering around the streets of Melbourne CBD and there's somebody um, sitting with their back up against the wall looking as though they uh, slept rough last night, uh, what's the best thing for me to say to that person? Sure. I, I, please, to anybody that's listening, always um, do it with dignity because, you know, although they're experiencing homelessness, they're still a person. Uh, and the people that I speak to on the streets of Melbourne and surrounding suburbs um, are up for a genuine conversation. Um, but we need to remove the stigma um, um, that is attached to someone experiencing homelessness and, and particularly the really toxic one that some people uh, or most people choose to be homeless. It's just simply not the case at all. Uh, having a genuine conversation, saying g'day, giving eye contact um, is just a really simple human connection that people who are experiencing their worst um, really need. Um, and it's a simple, simple human to human thing that we can do. Eye contact, saying g'day. Um, some people will invite you to sit down in their space. Some people will ask for money. Some people will turn away and that's their choice and that's okay. Um, but seeing people on the streets, no different to someone that you talk to in the office at a takeaway shop or at a family dinner, I think is the best message I could send there. Do you give money to people who ask for it? Um, I do. From from time to time, the challenge I've got here is uh, a lot of people um, know me on the streets of Melbourne CV now being um, the CEO of Youth Project. So it's a bit hard because you find yourself um, opening up your wallet from um, time to time. Um, I do. I, I've just actually returned, Andrew, from um, five or six weeks in the United States, which was incredibly challenging. I was there for a, a um, social entre entrepreneurship leadership program at Stanford, but spent four weeks traveling around America and Canada, visiting like-minded organizations. And, and, then, and I mean, homelessness in America is an incredible challenge. It's um, there's homelessness encampments everywhere. 
particularly in San Francisco, right? Oh, definitely. San Francisco was incredibly confronting. And even for someone, um, you know, of my own experience, uh, it was it was tense, it was confronting, and at times it was scary. But the conversations I were having uh, over there were, were quite different to here. Over there, the, the system was broken and people were trying to access services, but no one could help them. Um, here, the, there are a lot of options for people who are, who are uh, experiencing homelessness. Um, but I, I suppose to go back to the premise of your question, do I, do I give money? Um, I will, and I have, and I'll continue to. I think it's the most dignified thing to do is to give people their own options. Um, we do see a great deal of kindness in our community with people making hot meals and dropping off clothes. Um, what I say is try and engage people in the, in the experience service sector that exists. We have the greatest youth workers, the greatest social workers, the greatest doctors and health clinicians in the world, I believe. Um, and they are the greatest place for people to access support because they can really support um, you know, people to become the best that they can be. You've also uh, got a, a location in the wonderful Hosier Lane, the, uh, the uh, lane in, in the middle of Melbourne with those fabulous murals on the side. Uh, how does, uh, how does uh, good, co good Coffee, uh, Good To Go operate? Sure, great question. I'm, I'm coming to you live from Hosier Lane as we speak, the epicentre of Melbourne's homelessness crisis at the moment. Um, we have a small social enterprise which is a you know, pop-up behind a garage roller door and a wonderful cafe team that exists just right next door to our premier health clinic called The Living Room. So just around the corner the clients can access the doctors and whatnot and around the other corner we have our coffee shop. Uh, Hosier Lane has thousands of tourists coming up and down every day. We saw an opportunity uh, about six, seven years ago um, to use a cafe as a social enterprise training opportunity. So young people from our major service centres up in the northwest of Melbourne um, go through an employability um, skills training program, a little bit of barista training, um, and um, some basic uh, employment skills, and then they come down to the cafe and do some work experience. And, and that program helps around 30 young people a year. Um, they're given everything from basic food, hygiene and preparation to um, barista, you know, coffee making, customer service, cleaning, dealing with the public. Um, and a large percentage of them, I think last year we had 76% of those young people go out um, and secure full-time meaningful employment. Um, now, we harness um, both the opportunity of the tourism trade and um, use that money to train the young people and, and hire um, the people to run the cafe, but also a large percentage of those people use our pay it forward scheme. And we actually make a great deal of, uh, of hot coffees and, and hot breakfasts for people experiencing homelessness who are accessing the clinic next door. So it's a wonderful social enterprise and I'm very pleased to see that um, a number of um, sort of key players here in Victoria have recognised that as, as the fantastic social enterprise it is. And we are replicating that model and opening um, about 25 minutes up the road a new a social enterprise called The Little Social um, out at Rosanna train station um, in partnership with Banyul City Council later this year. Uh, so if anyone's uh, looking for a, a coffee in Melbourne, Hosier Lane's just uh, off uh, Flinders Street, right? Uh, near the uh, near Federation Square? Correct. Right across the road. You can't miss it. Look for all the graffiti. We're about halfway up. And people couldn't, can, can not only get a coffee for themselves, but they can also uh, pay it forward with a coffee, right? Tell us about That's that. That's correct. Yeah, the, the pay it forward scheme is, is brilliant. So basically you can come in, order your coffee or a toasty or a smoothie, acai bowl, um, whatever it is that you feel like. And for the same purchase amount, 
um, leave a pay it forward behind and, and, and leave a wonderful message up on the board. Uh, and as someone who's experiencing homelessness may not have accessed any or had anything to eat um, that particular day, can come up, check the board and if there's a coffee or a meal. Um, a, a wonderful stranger really has left a kind message behind and, and is able to actually pay it forward, which is a wonderful scam. I think we do um, somewhere around 20,000 of those a year, uh, which is fantastic for the people that can't access food. So we uh, we jumped uh, through your professional life there uh, to uh, to your current role uh, as uh, as CEO, but you've also uh, been on quite an interesting personal journey over the last uh, last decade. Yeah, look, I, I, interesting um, is is uh, a word that I would definitely use. Uh, I mean, it's it's had its ups and downs, and, and I'm very grateful for the journey that I've been on. Um, as I said, I was lucky enough um, to be the father of two children, so Zane, who's 14, and Matilda, who's now 10. Um, and I was married uh, incredibly young. Um, and, you know, I am incredibly appreciative of and, um, and very loving towards my ex-wife, who was a wonderful supportive partner. But I had dealt with my own um, challenges throughout my life, including significant mental illness, um, and had battled that for some time. But coming from quite a traditional upbringing and then um, going from kind of crisis situation to crisis situation, I'd never really thought about myself and battled my own demons uh, until about my my mid twenties, um, when my world basically came crashing down. My mental illness was at its worst. I put on significant weight. I wasn't taking care of myself, um, and they were incredibly dark days for me. Uh, and I'd been asking myself some pretty significant and big questions um, for for some time, but had seen myself as um, I suppose a role model for my family, but those around me didn't really want to succumb to what was my truth and. And eventually, um, six years ago, I decided to um, come out. That was an incredibly challenging time, not just for me, but also for, for my family, for my children and those around me. Um, and I'm sure lots of people really just threw their hands up in the air and, and asked why. Um, and, and the best way that I can answer it is I just simply wasn't ready to deal with that truth. Uh, I'd spent my life supporting everybody else and it was finally time to support me. Um, I, I don't hide from the injustice was uh, that was, which was that I was married and I had children, uh, and I never will. And I apologise profusely to my wife at the time, who I'm very, very pleased to say is my best friend, and I wouldn't have survived without her. There were some incredibly dark days there. She was my number one supporter. We remain best friends, and and we both co-parent the kids now. Um, and they get away with nothing because mum and dad talk daily. Um, I'm. <laughs> I'm very, very appreciative of, um, of my very close family, particularly my sisters and my friends who supported me through those incredibly dark days. It could have gone either way. Um, I feel it when people are enduring significant mental illness. I know that. I hear you. I see you. I've been there. Um, you can come back from it. You just simply need to ask for help. And, and I'm very glad that I did. Five or six years ago seems like a, an eternity now, but it's been quite a significant journey to try and rebuild myself, rebuild my own mental health whilst also you know, raising two children, supporting my ex-wife and making sure that she's okay and her mental health is okay uh, and building a career and, and helping Melbourne's most vulnerable. So yeah, it's been interesting. It's been challenging. Um, I live with no regrets. Um, I, I think that everything happens for a reason, but I am most, most appreciative uh, of the people around me and, and they're really um, the reason why I've been able to continue to do what I do. There's a lot in there. Uh, let me start <laughs> with the, the question of sexuality. How is coming out change the way in which you engage with, with your staff and, and the clients? 
how, how is that different now uh, than it was when before you came out? Sure. Uh, the one word that comes to me constantly is freedom. And freedom of oneself is incredibly important. I learn a lot about myself and I learn a lot about other people through that process. Um, what I quickly realized post um, coming out was that I'd been carrying this stress, this angst. It felt like bricks sitting on my shoulders. It felt like um, concrete sitting on my head and my body. Um, and what it had done is actually created blinkers and I'd become um, so focused on just surviving and, and making sure that people saw that I was working hard and being the best that I could be, that I actually hadn't opened myself up to what the world had to offer, which was a great deal of personal connection with other people and, and self-learning and personal development. Um, and, and I realized that once I shook all of that off uh, and I became my true self and who I was meant to be, I became more receptive to other people's opinions. I became um, less confrontational uh, and more reflective. Um, and developed what is now my, my sort of key leadership mark and something that I explain when I'm mentoring other people um, is this one simple statement. And it is that we must listen to hear, not must listen to respond. And I'd spent a great deal of time listening to respond to people. I always had another argument. I always had rebuttal. Um, but instead, I, I took the time to actually listen to what other people were saying, listen to how they were feeling and, and understand that we're all different. Um, not everyone has the same expectations. And taking that um, forward from a leadership perspective has, has been able to, uh, I suppose, empower me to see everyone as an individual. We all get given roles and position descriptions and duties, but actually how we carry out that role, how we see things um, is very, very different, but it's also very enriching. There is no point surrounding yourself with um, like-minded personalities. The world only needs one Ben Vassalo, let me tell you right now. Uh, we don't need any more Bens. Um, what we need is, is lots of different opinions and, and lots of different thoughts uh, and lots of different individuals who are striving to be the best that they can be to make a better world. It sounds as though you've become more comfortable with, uh, with vulnerability and, and maybe also with, with the prospect of being wrong. Yeah, the second part's really hard. I hate being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Um, yeah, that's right. But I think, I mean, vulnerability is such a portal to power, right? Um, you know, again, spending so much time having to be um, this big, confident, kind of bravado-filled person that was always right is actually not the key. Um, anyone that thinks that you have to be right all the time, particularly in a leadership position, is definitely um, not going to sustain a career as an executive for very long. Um, the, the power of vulnerability and sharing that vulnerability at the right time, of course, and in the right space and with the right people um, leads to such wisdom being creative because we do not know everything and we can't be all things to all people. So I, I lean on my vulnerabilities, I lean on my lived experience to invite others in to share their stories and show that we're all in this together. I'm going to have strengths and skills that other people don't have and I'm going to be better at things that other people um, might not be. But they're also going to be uh, better than me at certain things. They're going to have um, stronger competencies and capabilities than I will in certain areas. Uh, and that's, that's the simplicity of teamwork, is actually leaning on each other's strengths. But to do that, you've got to have strong uh, human connection um, in an appropriate and professional manner, of course, but, but leaning on um, each other and understanding who you are and what it is that you're trying to achieve um, leads to some great results. And I particularly found that with my team here at Youth Projects. Yes, it's, it's difficult to surround yourself with people who have uh, strengths in areas in which you're, uh, you're weak. 
uh, much more much more common in organisations to see people uh, surrounding themselves with uh, with clones. Very much so, and and I think I, I do look around, and I, I can be um, a little bit confrontational at times when I I see. Um, the same people making the same decisions without any lived experience or with a great deal of talent around them, that, that frustrates me. I, I think the more we lean on people who might be stronger and more intelligent and um, more skilled in areas, the better we will be because we get the opportunity to learn from them. Um, I, I, I look at the team that I have um, and I'm constantly building that particular team based on the skills that I don't have for the betterment of the people that we serve, not for the betterment of my ego. And I think that's an incredibly challenging thing for CEOs to look at, particularly in this sector. Turning to mental health, uh, you're uh, exceptionally well placed, I suppose, to, to think about uh, what each of us should be doing to look after our mental well-being. Uh, what sort of practices uh, or habits have you uh, have you developed uh, since coming through that that uh, that that stage in your life uh, that others could learn from? Sure, as as hard as it can be, talking is uh, an incredibly powerful tool in uh, stabilising good mental health or creating good mental health. Uh, opening up about some of those vulnerabilities, but also creating um, some downtime for yourself. Uh, for me personally, I have always felt that I need to be go, 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 on the go to be productive or seem to be productive, always creating new initiatives, new strategies, doing something. Um, and what I actually have found as I mature and I, um, in both years and wisdom is that creating downtime for the things that I truly enjoy um, has really improved my mental health, but gives me more energy. Um, so I, I absolutely love to cook, absolutely love to cook. Um, so making sure that I create time throughout the week for me to do that and, and spend that time with the kids. Um, I really enjoy playing netball. I grew up playing netball with, uh, with both my folks and, and my sisters. Both my kids play, play netball. Um, so do you have a, a standard position you play? Yeah, I'm, well, I, I play goal defence now. I'm a defender. I started in attack, but I got... Uh, all the the blokes uh, shot up around me. I'm only about five foot ten, um, so I've gone back into defence and um, I play it well. I mean, in footy terms, I'm definitely a half back flanker. I think in netball terms, my uh, my ten year ten year old's uh, best position is goal defence as well. Ah, brilliant, brilliant! I love a good defender. There's um, we come with a, a certain personality and character, us goal defenders. Um, but it's important to create time for that. I never miss our Thursday night social mix comp. It's just something mm. that, I, that I, I really enjoy doing. Uh, and the last one is, is socialising. Socialising is key for me. I feed off other people's energy. I like to be surrounded by intellects who, who love a challenging conversation and I make sure that I create that environment, whether it be a, you know, a glass of vino on a Sunday afternoon or a dinner party or a movie. I make sure that I create time for me and my friends. Uh, do you meditate? Uh, I, I do practice some mindfulness um, in two particular um, cases. So I generally practice mindfulness um, when my head hits the pillow. Arguably, it's not the right time, but for me, it works. So when I put my head down on the pillow at night time, I give myself um, 10 minutes uh, and I practice a couple of basic mindfulness techniques really about letting the day that's been go. So as the thoughts come in, I let them move and I let them move and carry the weight of the day with them and let that go and open myself up for the next day. Let me just, uh, just, just tell me a little bit more on that. You let the thoughts carry the weight of the day. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, so I, I typically will reflect a lot on how the day's gone or you know how I feel I performed throughout the day, particularly at work or even performed as a parent, the conversations that I've had, the decisions that I've made. Mm. Um, and instead of carrying them forward with me, what I like to do is carry the thought into my head, understand that that particular, uh, the weight of that decision or that thought or that whatever that impact was for me today needs to be left in the past and all I can do is focus on tomorrow. So as opposed to carrying the angst with me and you know maybe some things have hurt, maybe I've, I've been disappointed in someone, maybe I was too harsh on a decision, I choose to let that thought go and make a mental note to address that tomorrow uh, and I call that future Ben's problem. It's yes. not today, in this moment, I need to let that go. I'm not carrying that with me. As I said before, I, I felt like I'd, I'd carried bricks on my shoulders. I'd carried so much weight with me for so long. It's time to let that go. Um, and if I practice kindness and I'm genuinely a good person, then I should never wake up feeling bad. And, and leaving those thoughts behind in today, uh, tomorrow is a new day, is just a really simple practice for me. Um, the, the second technique that I use is in really stressful decisions or, or stressful moments when um, people look to you because you're a strong leader, a confident, extroverted leader. People seem to look to you. And I fell into a trap very early on in my career making very snap decisions, very quick decisions that I thought people wanted to hear, but they weren't always the best decisions. So now if I'm not sure, or, or even if I feel overly confident, what I like to do is just take stock and say, look, give me five minutes, five, 10 minutes, just give me some time, walk away, out of the building, into fresh air, into some sunlight, and just five minutes, five minutes of the same technique. Let's just carry the thought in, let that thought go, give it five minutes, come back to the, um, the problem. Uh, have I thought about the problem in the right um, setting? Um, I like to use some basic design thinking principles, uh, reverse engineer the problem, make sure I'm answering the right question because sometimes people aren't asking you the right questions, then go back to the decision. But just giving yourself that five minutes fresh air, no one around you, um, really alleviates the tension and the stress of that particular decision-making process. Um, the best example I can give is when someone um, sends you an email and you type a really grumpy response, you should always leave it, walk away, come back to it in half an hour, and I can guarantee you, you want to change that email. It's the same around you know um, your own thought processes and decision making. Taking time out is really really key. Yeah, that's great advice about uh, not responding too hastily on emails. Uh, your point before about uh, separating negative thoughts from yourself uh, reminds me. I, I used to uh, play theatre sports at Belvoir Street Theatre, and when I lived in Sydney. And there's a habit that the improvised acting crowd uh, gets in, which is that when you've done an improvised scene which completely bombed and didn't work, then as you walk off stage, you wave your hand behind your backside uh, as though you've just farted on the stage. Uh, and the, the metaphor is we just did something really bad, but we are not bad. The scene was bad. Now we're waving, waving it away. The smell will dissipate and the next scene will be terrific because we continue to be, uh, to, to be good. Bravo, bravo. What a great analogy. I like that example. That's fantastic. Um, not, not necessarily something you want to do in everyday life because people <laughs> will just think you farted. Uh, but uh, I was going to ask you, it's, it would be remiss of me not to, to delve into um, what, uh, what Youth Project is doing now in the midst of uh, this extraordinary coronavirus crisis. How's that affecting uh, what you do and, and how do some of our listeners learn with, with how you're assisting some of Australia's most vulnerable people through, through this, uh, this public health crisis. 
Sure, it's been a, an incredibly challenging time. I mean, we've grown to become quite a large charity now. We've got 110, 115 staff on the ground. Um, as you said in your opening, we support many thousands of contacts each year. So for us, the initial um, commitment was that we will remain open to the most vulnerable people in the community um, and we will keep our, our staff uh, and keep our people safe. So um, we've moved a great deal of our services um, to telehealth-based appointments as much as we possibly can. Um, but they're primarily from a, uh, a youth services perspective. So we can do mental health counselling, dual diagnosis counselling, alcohol and drug support, crisis support via FaceTime, Zoom, video, and where appropriate and where possible, we'll do individual contacts. Um, whilst also practising social distancing, but we've kept um, our core critical services open, our living room, so our doctor's clinic for the homeless remains open. Uh, and again, as much as we can keep our staff and the clients safe, um, we, we keep everyone as distant as we possibly can, but we refuse to close that service. And I'm very grateful for the incredible staff that we have on hand that have turned up day in, day out, putting themselves at risk um, to support people. We've been involved in a great network here in Melbourne of agencies coming together to access the state government's emergency relief funding for temporary housing. Um, and as a collective, we've moved hundreds of people uh, off the streets into hotels and motels. And I will say appropriate accommodation. This is not below substandard. This is people moving into the empty hotels, keeping um, that particular industry alive here in Melbourne the best that we can. Um, here at the living room, we've moved just over 60 people as a sector. I think we've moved 600. Um, and now it's about keeping those people engaged in that accommodation and getting out to them. Uh, and supporting them with the additional supports that they need. Um, we still deliver the after hours nursing service on the streets. We have a team of two or three nurses and mental health nurses out there actually assertively outreaching into vulnerable hotspots across Melbourne, targeting places we know that people are sleeping, squats, empty car parking lots, and, and trying to get them to get access to that housing support. Uh, and we deliver our full suite of harm reduction. The last thing that we want uh, in the COVID-19 crisis is you know, an, an outbreak of a bloodborne um, disease. So we're still handing out thousands upon thousands of um, clean equipment for people who, who choose to inject drugs or take drugs. We want them to do it safely and have access to our services. We don't necessarily condone drug use, but we condone harm reduction practices and supporting to people to do that in a clean and sterile environment. Uh, and use that as a tool to get them back into treatment. So we remain open. I've got people working around the clock. I think last shift finishes at about 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. each night. Um, and, and I'm incredibly, incredibly uh, appreciative of the team's work. And thanks from me for uh, the important work that you're doing. Uh, I mean, really is uh, looking after some of Australia's most vulnerable uh, who were uniquely vulnerable to, uh, to coronavirus. No, 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 we appreciate that. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, finally, uh, Ben, a couple of uh, questions that I ask all of my interviewees. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I'd be quite stern with myself, Andrew, and I'd say to young Ben, when making decisions, I urge you to think about the future and what this means for you long term. Um, Easy decisions that make you feel good today will actually make life difficult in the long run. So I'd be hard and I'd be stern and I'd say make tougher decisions that might not be easy now, but they'll make for a better life later on. Um, and don't get that stupid tattoo. 
I thought your tattoo was uh, was your life uh, life mission. That's the one. I, I've got a couple, Andrew. I'll disclose. Okay, all right. We might be referring <laughs> um, that, to different tattoos there. Yeah, I am. I, I'll keep that one, uh, but I'd, I'd let the uh, the old silly one go if possible. Right, and uh, and and tell our listeners what your uh, uh, life goal tattoos says. Uh, it says, be the best that you can be. It's placed right atop of my right foot. So if I'm ever down or looking down, it just stares straight back at me and reminds me that I am my own person. I can only simply be the best that I can be, not what others want me to be. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Oh, that's a really good question as well. Um, I would probably, I used to believe that money didn't make the world go round. Um, and as unfortunate as it is, it actually does. I mean, we're looking at the world now, particularly through the lens of COVID-19, um, and we've set ourselves up as a society, as an international society, um, based on economic principles. So it may be sad, but it's true. And um, I, I believe that um, money isn't necessarily evil anymore. What we can do is use money for good. Uh, what we can do, particularly in the social economy, uh, in community services, is if we can demonstrate economic impact on the services that we deliver, um, then people will understand why you should invest in the services that we deliver. And putting my economist hat on, you're, uh, you're particularly good at doing that in your, uh, your annual reports. Uh, you talk not only about the contacts you've made, but also the impact those contacts have had. And, and you give statistics like the fact that one of your after-hours contacts uh, is a fifth of the cost of an emergency department presentation. That's right. And, and thank you for reading it. It's, it's something that we really pride ourselves on here is we believe in the public health system and it's a great investment and we're very lucky in this country. But I always challenge to suggest that community-based interventions are much cheaper. And our after-hours nursing service is a fifth of the cost of a, a public health presentation in an emergency department uh, and even cheaper when it comes to admission. The more we invest in preventative measures, the more it makes both social and economic sense. We can model that for you, we can show that to you, um, but we also know that we can get in and save lives earlier. So if we use um, the fact that some people lean on a social ear and some people lean on an economic ear, let's have the case argument ready to go for both uh, and we can't lose and we can get more people off the streets. When are you most happy? Uh, <laughs> Watching the footy, I'd suggest. I'm an AFL man. I love my pies. Um, I think football for me is is about camaraderie. It's about community. I grew up um, in the midst of the Collingwood Football Club. I've been lucky enough to see a couple of premierships. I love watching the footy with my family, with my friends. I, I go every second weekend here in Melbourne. Uh, I love my pies. And as much as I would love to say family and friends, uh, as long as they're there at the football with me, that's my number one. <laughs> What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, look, I think what I referred to before was genuine downtime. I'm constantly on the go, but as I age, I become wiser and realise that uh, I'm no good to anyone burnt out. Uh, in, the, in the famous words of RuPaul, um, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? So I love <laughs> myself by playing netball, walking the dogs. I love to cook. I love a good glass of vino. Alcohol in moderation is fine. Um, so I make sure that I give myself plenty of downtime so I can love myself. Uh, I was about to make a raining men joke, but I'm going to refrain there. Do you have any guilty pleasures? 
The guilty pleasure. Oh, look, definitely, as I said, vino, wine, in moderation. I live on the Mornington Peninsula. I, I've grown up in arguably one of the world's best wine regions. Um, Riesling's and, down there, isn't it? Sorry? Is it Riesling's down there? Yeah, yeah, Riesling's also known for a decent Chardonnay. Pinot Noir, hmm. uh, I'll give a quick plug to the old Tegallant down on the peninsula. Wonderful winery, but there's nothing better. Uh, sipping on a very simple, very um, crisp Pinot Noir Friday night, watching the footy. Uh, that's, uh, that's where I'm at. And finally, Ben, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, well, it all started for me with a stranger, Andrew. In fact, after after my mum passed and we were we basically had nothing, I remember um, a lady from the local football club sort of turning up to the house with his truck and these boxes and just boxes of things, toiletries, you know, everything um, that you would need from shampoos, toilet papers, toothpaste, but some food and some and clothes and whatnot. And she just said, "Look, you know, someone heard of your situation and your story." Uh, and he's asked us to deliver all of this to, to the three of you. Um, and there was just a note saying, when you're in a position, do the same thing too. And for me, that was like, okay, there's some kindness out there. Uh, and I believe that that truly set me on the, on the trajectory that uh, I've landed in today. Well, you've well and truly paid it forward. Uh, ben Vassalow, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Brilliant. No, no, thank you so much, Andrew, for giving me the opportunity to share my journey and, um, and all the best. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.